welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast, and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 73, Spanish Renaissance Theatre, Part 2, Before the Commedia. Last time, I started our journey to the Spanish Golden Age with a bit of a step backwards into the Spanish medieval period. When the Spanish playwrights left the severest confines of liturgical drama, they didn't abandon biblical drama altogether, but produced secular works alongside religious ones and, in some cases, began to combine the two. By the early 16th century, something distinctly Spanish was beginning to take hold of theatre, promulgated through the works of Juan del Elcina, Lucas Fernandez and Bartolomé de Torres Naro, among others, and not forgetting Fernando de Rojas and his influential play Celestina. What made their work particularly Spanish, apart from an early willingness to leave Latin for the vernacular in general, was a particular joy that they found in the use of rustic language, as a means to define character and generate comedy. They also leaned towards the Romantic, and were early adopters in exploring chivalric sensibilities. They were way less concerned than the French about the nature, form and rules for theatre, or at least they were less overtly concerned about it nor felt the need to express and discuss those rules as the French did. The Spaniards learnt fast from the Italians, but were more adventurous in their use of varying poetic forms and their willingness to leave Latin behind them than their European cousins ever were. But all of that was just the start. Picking up the baton from Encina and Rojas, Gil Vicente came from the West. He was Portuguese, but worked in theatre across the Iberian Peninsula writing in both Portuguese and Castilian. Born about 1465, he became a poet, playwright, actor and organiser of the revels at the Spanish court, a position he held until his death in about 1536. The details about his life are sketchy, but it's possible that he became initially attached to the Portuguese court as a goldsmith and was then spotted by Queen Leonor as he acted as an amateur in the courtly entertainment Influent Castilian, her first language. She encouraged his performances and writing as a poet and a dramatist. He wrote a series of dramatic dialogues for her entertainment. The beauty of the language he used was soon recognised and his ability with lightly comic subjects was enjoyed in court. At the time, he was the only dramatist working in the Portuguese court. Indeed, as far as we know, he was the only dramatist working in the country. That lack of competition, that isolation, is thought to have held him back. Generally, the feeling is that he had the talent to be more ambitious and creative than he was, and had he enjoyed more intellectual exposure to the Italian dramatists and others, then he might have been prompted to produce some even more varied and interesting works. Which is not to say that those that he did produce didn't have some points of interest. His early short plays take religious stories but expand them beyond the strictly biblical to explore their themes more deeply than was typical of his predecessors. Even in these religious plays, there's an eye to the secular. In his second play, The Ship of Hell, he parades the recently dead as they travel with an angel and a devil across the sea to hell. Each tries to plead for salvation, but most are rejected as their sins in life are revealed. Some of the characters, and it really is the characters as individuals that seem to interest Vicente most, like the Procurus and the dishonest cobbler, come from the stock characters of Plautus. Others, like the greedy friar and the shepherdess, come from the more recent pastoral and comic traditions. Yet all are given very individual characteristics. Ultimately, the judgement is harsh. 
Only very few are promised rescue from the ship before they dock at the gates of hell. The fool, whose lack of intellect means he knew no better, and the knights of the Order of Christ who died violent deaths but in God's service, are the only passengers who are saved. The extra-liturgical elements in these plays eventually led to a posthumous examination of the work and other Vicente plays by the Portuguese Inquisition and the suppression of his work. Consequently, his reputation suffered a long period of decline before a rediscovery that has led him to now be regarded as the father of Portuguese theatre and a significant co-founder of Spanish theatre. He used the image of the devil carting off lost souls in several variations to the ship of hell. But he could also turn his hand to comedy, which he always kept simple and short, perhaps aware that plotting was not his strongest talent. The Sailor's Wife, from 1509, deals with the attempts of the eponymous character to be unfaithful during her husband's long absence. And Serenade, from about the same time, tells the story of a destitute courtier trying to woo a feckless young woman. The court preferred these frivolities to the moralistic offerings, but he continued to mix his styles and subjects. The Praise of War is a celebration of Portuguese military achievements, and The Soul's Journey, written in about 1518, is an allegorical journey of the soul of man who finds shelter of the church like an accommodating roadside inn. He clearly wrote to please his audience, but did so with a degree of variety and skilled use of the language that took his work beyond the confines of the court. He succeeded most notably in a longer work called Don Juridos, a tragic comedy that adapted the story of two early novels in 1521. It was staged in 1525. The original novels were by Francisco Vazquez and an anonymous author and had been around for about ten years before Vicente's play, which was no slavish adaptation. Whether novels take the ideas of chivalry very seriously, the play is a farce and makes fun of such concerns. The hero is an English nobleman who has travelled to Constantinople to settle a matter of honour with the emperor's son. On arrival, he sees the princess of the palace and instantly falls for her. He disguises himself as a palace gardener and engineers a meeting with her. She is attracted to him, but resists because of the difference in their social standings. He then creates an aphrodisiac potion to help things on their way, which she ingests, but is still able to resist his advances, as he refuses to reveal his own noble lineage. His overriding desire is that she should love him for his own self, unencumbered by social norms. Eventually, all is resolved. She accepts him as a gardener. All can then be revealed and the couple happily escape to England. Like many plays of the time, it was written to be staged as a spoken dialogue, but as a study of the feelings that drive actions in love and its attempts to give characters psychological motivation, it was well ahead of its time. As the 16th century progressed, the Spanish secular theatre continued to enjoy steady growth. Italian theatrical touring companies found fertile ground on the peninsula and performed widely, bringing the latest ideas with them and exerting considerable influence. Encina had popularised the Italian reworkings of Latin comedies and that trend continued as one strand of Spanish theatre, reaching a peak in the works of Lupe de Rueda. Born in about 1505 and working until his death in 1565, he was the first dramatist to truly commercialise theatre in Spain, and he did that by bringing it directly to the masses. Rueda started as an actor in an Italian troupe and later became a touring manager in his own right. A true actor-manager, he ran the company and was one of the principal performers. 
He took the Italian influences and years of experience as an actor and wrote plays for his troupe to perform in the marketplaces and inns in the major cities in Spain. Although his troupe also performed at court and in noble houses, it was his theatre for the masses that really made a mark. He took various Italian sources and produced vernacular prose versions for the stage, proving that the audience were ready for plays that had previously been seen as suitable for intellectuals and the court. His plots are rather slow-moving and not in themselves particularly memorable, but his ability to create witty dialogue and comic moments through the use of different rustic dialects is undeniable. In fact, it's not these elements within the plays that stand out most, but their inclusion as part of short entertainments between scenes in longer plays. These interludes were known as passos, and were added to provide the audience with some light relief. Ten examples by Rueda survive. The Olives, from 1548, is typical, with a family of foolish farmers arguing about the price of olives just as soon as the trees have been planted. It's a simple and lively plot, told in racy, natural language, that's similar to that spoken by the servants in La Celestina. Rueda represents a strand of Spanish theatre that had developed away from the courtly and academic circles, and was designed to entertain the townsfolk and provide the travelling player with his next meal. As he sought the appeal of the masses, Rueda found his voice in the contemporary colloquial speech of the audience. In his plays, the voices of the common man in Spain come alive through their vocabulary and particularly their proverbial sayings and misspeakings that Rueda clearly had an ear for. Combined with the rustic scenes particularly found in the Passos, Rueda gives us a hint of what was to become popular in Spanish theatre. Rueda's success was followed by a member of his troupe, Alonso de la Vega, and several other playwriting actors who tried to emulate his success. They still produced a mixture of religious and secular works, with the secular only slowly overtaking the religious in popularity. Despite that growing popularity, religious theatre in Spain still remained active, with the medieval influences in literature having a much longer tail in Spain than elsewhere in Europe. The Spanish Catholic Church remained influential, and the Spanish did not entirely reject their Gothic past in the bright light of the Renaissance. The tradition of the early nativity and passion plays in the tableau for Corpus Christi Day continued well into the 16th century, which included the continued use of the Auto Sacramental, the one-act allegorical symbolic play, as part of the procession and religious celebration. Spain in 1520 sees the first play that we know was specifically written for the Corpus Christi Day celebrations. In the mid and later part of the centuries, the autosacramental itself had begun to develop into something more than just a biblical drama or hagiography. Examples of autos that start to show the structure and dramatic elements of tragedy begin to emerge around 1530, with the trend becoming more pronounced as the century progressed. The tragedy of Joseph from 1535 is the first to have an explicitly tragic ending, and the auto of Cain and Abel from about 1560 is a short, miniature tragedy that nods heavily to Seneca. The History of the Glorious Saint Orosia by Bartolome Palu is a full-on six acts of hagiography mixed with tragedy. The play dramatised historical events, the defeat of the Visigoth King Rodrigo by the Moors in 711, and is an acknowledged forerunner for some Golden Age drama. There are several examples of autos from the period that stretch the religious theme and form that start to reach into the secular. 
The Thief of Digma, attributed to Lupe de Rueda, includes a character who would be more at home in an Italian-Latin comedy. An Easter play called Christ Victorious from 1569 fuses elements of the morality and the cycle plays. From the mid-century, Sebastián de Horosco produced two snappily titled autos, An Evangelical History of the Ninth Chapter of St. John and The Parable of the Holy Gospel in the Twelfth Chapter of St. Matthew that mix elements of religious and folkloric storytelling. This suggests not only that Spanish playwrights really needed to work on their titles more, but that there was a pull on them created by the desire to continue the traditions of religious drama, but also to explore new ideas and forms outside of these confines. During the latter part of the 16th century, the moving processions on Corpus Christi Day were adapted and expanded to be used in other municipal festivals, and the Auto Sacramental was given increased importance, with the original processional plays, plays of the Nativity and the Easter Passion, being reduced. One of the better-known writers of Corpus Christi plays was Juan de Tomineda, whose 1578 offering Sacramental combined six autos in an attempt to make them into a single work. He was stretching the liturgical form to its limit, and the plays demonstrate the dramatic power and lyric atmosphere that are characteristic of his style. The quality of his work surpassed that of earlier anonymous works, and he tried to incorporate the new artistic tendencies of his day into religious theatre. Works by Spaniards in the tragic form really only get truly going when the decline of religious drama has taken hold more or less by the end of the 16th century. Experimentation with the form that had come to Spain through Italian interpretation of Roman tragedy reached its peak in the last two decades of the century. Early attempts were sporadic and met with little popular success, but the acceptance of the use of local legends in drama, the concern for honour and an inclination towards pathos, meant that the time for an acceptance of tragedy was coming. Following the group of playwrights whose autos lent towards tragedy came a group who took up tragedy as a secular form and tried to closely follow its classical form as they understood it. A tragedy on the chastity of Lucretia is a very early example from 1528, and copies of Italian tragedies by Fernand Perez de Olivia followed soon after. His versions of Sophocles' Electra and Euripides' Hecuba are perhaps the first true Spanish secular tragedies. Oliva was a believer in the strength of the vernacular, and was determined to show that tragedy could speak to the common man. To render it more intelligible for Spaniards, he didn't slavishly follow the original works. Most notably, he lessened the role of the chorus and replaced the Greek religious ethic with Christianity, which was pretty much an essential in the religious climate of the time. There isn't any evidence that Olivia's approach had a lasting impact on popular theatre, but the dramatic circles of universities responded. In the wake of his work, classical tragedies and comedies and their imitations were presented at the influential University of Salamanca beginning in 1538, and soon afterward in the Jesuit schools as well. A third phase of Spanish drama was pioneered by Geronimo Bermudez, who rather grandly called himself the first author of Spanish tragedy. He was from Galicia, born about 1530, and a Dominican friar. His innovation was to replace the tragic stories from classical Greece with local Spanish history, legend and myth. He then placed these tales into a Senecan model. His original plays, Suffering Nice and Nice Rewarded, which were published in 1577, 
are based on the semi-historical story of Inez de Castro and her love for a crown prince in Portugal, an affair that ended with her tragic death in 1355. When Bermudez strived to adhere to classical precepts, others were more comfortable with trying to mould tragedy to local sensibilities. Cristobal de Verure wrote five plays between 1570 and 1590, where he all but abandoned the chorus and reduced five acts to three. Classic Spanish theatre was to wholly endorse the three-act play, and almost entirely abandoned five acts, so with hindsight this was a significant move. Berue could match Seneca for shocking scenes and unexpected events, but replace Roman fatalism with a dash of Christian optimism. But perhaps more strikingly, he could write for the grand scale. The plot of The Great Semiramis takes place over 22 years and shows the rise and fall of the semi-legendary Babylonian queen. Although the Greek and Roman sources for the tale tell of a strong woman who married into Babylonian royalty and ruled the empire successfully after the death of her husband, Verue takes the post-Christian view and shows how the selfish ambition of an overmighty woman, rather than the cruel hand of fate, is the self-inflicted cause of her fall. In his hands, the play is a study in the female personification of evil. The structure is interesting because each act shows distinctly separate dramatic situations that combine to create the arc of the story. The first act concerns the meeting of Serumanis and King Ninus, the second is the period of her rule, and the third is all about the vengeance of her son, whose birthright she has denied. Virue continued the theme of strong female characters with The Cruel Cassandra. His titular heroine is indeed cruel, sacrificing her brother in the name of her own ambition as she plots against the ruling family of Leon. But she gets her just desserts. The plot is of the author's own creation and the piece notable for the central role of a strong female character. However, even his near-contemporaries criticised his work for the exaggerated passions on display. A bit too much Seneca for Spanish taste, perhaps. Undeterred, he produced Furious Attila, where the mental distress of the heroine, Flaminia, at the hands of Attila, is lingered over until she breaks and, driven by his cruelty to extreme action, she poisons him. He has time to strangle her before the poison takes effect. It is a blood-soaked piece that owes a lot to Seneca, but also shows that it is the decisions of humans that shapes history, not the whims of fate and fortune. His last play, The Unfortunate Marcella, borrows an element of Ariosto's Orlando Furioso for its plot, and is in essence a romantic comedy dealing with the question of honourable behaviour as seen from different strata of society. It's quite different from his previous work, and foreshadows much of what was to become popular in Spanish theatre, romance, honour and chivalric behaviour. And so Virue earns his place in the transition of theatre in Spain, thanks not only to his brave attempts to popularise tragedy, but in the way he tried to fuse classical precepts and the sensibilities of his time. Not every playwright who worked in the classical mode relied on bloodshed and gore. Although Andreas Rey de Artida wrote few plays, his single tragedy from 1581, The Lovers, is a good example of a play that both avoided a classical Greek model, the plot is a local Spanish legend of doomed lovers, and shows that the demise of the lovers is in their own making, without resorting to violence and bloodshed. Perhaps the most important dramatist of early Spanish theatre was Juan de la Cueva. 
Born about 1550 in Seville, he spent three years in Mexico from 1574 to 1577 before returning to Spain. After staging his first play in 1579, Quaver continued to be theatrically active until 1581. He didn't die until 1610, but he seems to have been satisfied with a long and uneventful retirement, at least one that didn't trouble the stage. Like Rouet, he was responsible for important foundations in the emerging dramatic form. He decisively influenced the formation of the Spanish theatre by adding national themes to his tragic plays, a form that was becoming more and more popular, and by giving the tragic form more social and political focus. Quaver's work was popular in its time, evidenced by the publication of his 14 plays in 1588. Four of these are dramas set in classical antiquity, drawing on Virgil's Aeneid and Ovid's Metamorphosis, but with changed themes to reflect less interest in the power of fate in human lives and greater concern for man's ability to engineer his own destruction. As a dramatist, he was uneven, but could write vigorous and emotional scenes. He is particularly known for having tested the limits of variation in verse forms that could be used in the poetry in the chorus. Previous dramatists had either tried to eliminate the chorus or been very conservative in testing the limits of what the chorus could achieve. Quaver showed that verse forms could be mingled and local and Italianate verse forms used interchangeably. Now this is a rather dry sounding and technical explanation, but the effect was an expansion of the Spanish language in theatre that gave the dramatist a broader language palette to use when investigating situation and particularly character we'll come across a much more significant expansion of language when we get to Elizabethan England. Shakespeare has long been famous for his creation of new words, and although some of that credit is a bit unjustified, it is still true that he, pretty much alone, enriched the English language in a way not seen by any other individual before or since. Well, something similar but smaller happened in Spain. Where the French resisted foreign additions to the language and the Italians were still too grounded in Latin to embrace such expansion, the Spanish, like the English, actively sought new means of expression and were not too fussy about where they came from. Quaver's impact was not all about language. He built on the use of national legends that his predecessors had begun – and was the gateway for his successors to use dramatisation of material from the Spanish anthology of ballads and the Spanish chronicles in historical legendary plays that were to follow. His objective portrayal of commonly known and understood historical characters from the collection of old Spanish ballads can be seen in plays like The Seven Princes of Lara, The Death of King Sancho and The Challenge of Zamora, all popular in their day and celebrations of a shared Spanish history. Quaver also brought near-contemporary subjects to the Spanish stage. The sack of Rome concerns the events of May 1527, when mutinous troops of Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, captured the city. The popular theme of honour was the subject of the defamer, written in 1581, through the protagonist Lucino, who is a seducer of women. It is the first example of a Don Juan character that was to become a significant feature in Spanish drama. The innovator of Don Juan was also happy to pay his dues to the past in the same play. The character of Theodora, the go-between, is a homage to Rojas and Celestina. A name you might not have been expecting to hear in the context of Spanish theatre is Miguel de Cervantes. 
He has no claim to be a great innovator in the theatre, especially in comparison to his triumphant work as a, and arguably, the first modern novelist. His masterpiece Don Quixote still stands astride the history of European literature in a unique way, and rightly so. However, he does have a place in the story just before the greatest moment of Spanish theatre. Born in 1547, he wrote plays from 1580. His first efforts were heavily influenced by the classicists and particularly of Verrouet. Of the 20 or 30 plays he wrote before 1587, only two four-act dramas survive. The Treatments in Algiers is a dramatisation of his own experiences as a prisoner of Barbary pirates, who captured him and held him for five years while he was serving in the Spanish navy, until he was ransomed and returned to Madrid. The rather more impressive second play is The Siege of Numancia. This is based on the historical events of 133 and 134 BCE, where the Romans laid siege to the citadel of Numancia during the occupation of the northern Iberian peninsula. The native Celtiberians held out against the Romans for a prolonged period, but after an eight-month siege, starvation took hold. Rather than capitulate, the citadel was set on fire and many families committed suicide. Cervantes's play is lofty in style and he turns the mass suicide and the idea of collective responsibility into a tragedy of considerable scale. Scale, however, is its problem. The cast of 43 characters is unwieldy and the extended use of lengthy high-flown poetry makes for a static and rather episodic play. Once again, this is a local story. The source material is a Spanish ballad that relates the story of the Iberian campaign by Roman general Scipio, turned to tragedy, and the later Romantics, Goethe, Shelley and the like, held it in high regard, even calling it a masterpiece. Much of the life of Cervantes is obscure and his literary triumphs come from the last three years of his life, at which point he also came back to the theatre. Initially, he returned to military-themed semi-autobiographical pieces, but his very last plays embraced the developing new style of Italian-inspired comedy. His very best theatrical work was as a writer of comic interludes. Only eight survive, but we can see in them a mastery in the crafting and concision of language that puts his work head and shoulders above his predecessors. His interludes are masterpieces of static irony with themes that paint a vivid picture of the experiences of those at the lower end of Spanish society. Cuckolded husbands, unreliable soldiers, unfaithful wives, aimless young men causing trouble and prejudice and ignorance in general abound and show how Cervantes could turn farce into serious intent. Cervantes is the really last significant figure in the early Spanish theatre but slipping in right at the end of the 16th century, Gabriel Lobo Lasso de la Vega is worthy of a mention thanks to his two tragedies first published in 1587. Just 12 years junior to Cervantes, he was able to free himself from the classical rules of theatre more freely than Cervantes ever did. He replaced sections of long narrative poetry that had been so typical with shorter episodic scenes, keeping the action in the play moving forward. In the Restored Honour of Dido and The Destruction of Constantinople, Vega tried to adapt epic stories with lyrical incidents to the dramatic form. By the 1580s, Spanish drama had begun to develop distinctive traits. 
but this is only the prelude to the greatest period of Spanish theatre. The coexistence of various dramatic traditions coming from Roman, mimetic and liturgical roots contributed to the form, principle and character of the uniquely Spanish offering that was being formulated. Classical drama continued to be emulated by many of the early Spanish playwrights of secular drama and tragedies, who in turn played a part in the evolution of theatre on the peninsula with their own innovations. The roots of that development go right back to the late medieval, where early use of the vernacular in dialogues and semi-secular playlets gave Spanish drama the particular character for which it became famous. And the medieval liturgical plays, together with the later mystery and morality plays, not only laid the groundwork for the saints' plays and the autosacramental that were to become part of the new drama, but also provided ingredients that would be used in secular drama too. The formative period of Spanish drama contained a brilliance of its own and a unique development that turned religious drama into tragedy and medieval entertainments into comedy via the influence of Italy and the classical history of theatre. That development was in the context of a flourishing of the arts that got properly started as early as the 1490s. The reconquest of the South and the voyage of Christopher Columbus in 1492 are often used as useful historical markers for the beginning of the Golden Age. But for the theatre, this is, I think, a little early. It was not until theatre became comfortable with the use of local history and legends and moved away from a high dependency on language rather than action that the true Golden Age for the theatre really took off and that was almost a century after the official start date for the arts in general. What marks out the period that I've been discussing in the last two episodes is not only the uniquely Spanish developments, but that the early playwrights found a medium for their works on the Spanish stage, which moved from crude beginnings in the streets, churches and churchyards, to the private residences of the kings and noblemen, and finally to the open-air and permanent theatres. Those elements combined in the creation of the Commedia, a three-act play that combined dramatic and comic elements and plots that involved love, jealousy, honour and patriotism. The Commedia, a mix of tragedy and comedy, had arrived. Next time, we're going to move away from the Spanish plays and playwrights and take a look at the Spanish stage itself. The Spanish place of seeing had a distinctly different development from the French and the Italian theatre, and the Spanish playhouse played a significant role in the development of Spanish and indeed global theatre. In the meantime, on the Patreon feed you can now hear the complete Henslow Diaries series just by joining up for a small monthly fee. I add new episodes there about twice a month and give access to everything as soon as you join up. So please do go to www.patreon.com thoetp and have a look there. There's a link in the show notes. Thanks everyone for your continued support, be that on Patreon, Ko-fi.com or just by listening to the podcast. Please do spread the word and help others find us. I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. Mm-hmm.